Verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself towards godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise to the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement and the warnings that are in this chapter. We open up our hearts to you. We thank you that you love us. You have unconditional love for us and forgiveness. Pray that you would move in this time through the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. A message on godliness, lesson in godliness. Encourage to exercise, to train in this area of godliness. Why would godliness be important in our lives? We see in the life of Jesus, it's told to us in Hebrews chapter 1, that he was anointed above all of his fellows with the oil of gladness. If we had the opportunity to spend time with Jesus in his earthly life, I think he would have been the most joyful, glad person on the planet. The scripture goes on to say, there in Hebrews chapter 1, it was because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. It was his godliness that was his source of joy, was his source of happiness. There's never been a time in my life, and I don't think there's ever been a time in your life that you've regretted living in a way that glorifies the Lord. You know, godliness sounds so heavy. Just, just by saying the word godliness, it seems like we're in for a really heavy study tonight, doesn't it? Jesus told us that he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. And that abundant life is found in godliness, in following him and devoting that life to living in a way that glorifies him. So if you're taking notes tonight, there's really three sections that I want to break this down into. The first is godly enjoyment. 
Yes, godly enjoyment. In these first five verses, we are to enjoy what God has provided with thanksgiving. The false teaching was you cannot enjoy these things. And so we find there's godliness and enjoyment. And then from verse 6 down to verse 11, we see, yes, godly exercise. Going to God's gym. Not the gold's gym, but to God's gym. And to train ourselves in godliness. So godly exercise. And then from verse 12 to verse 16 is a godly example. The importance of a godly example. Before we get into chapter 4, just look briefly with me at the end of chapter 3. It's been a little while since we've been in chapter 3. Because here we find at the end of the chapter is the source of godliness. In verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So isn't it a mystery that fallen sinful people like us could be godly? Like, doesn't that seem like a, a really tall order? So, so here's the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, received, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Jesus. Jesus is the mystery of godliness. If you know Christ as your Savior, Jesus lives in you. Amen? So the Father looks at us and is pleased, not because of us, but because of Christ's righteousness. And it's Christ in us that's the hope of glory. We have no hope of godliness apart from Jesus Christ. It simply becomes a a self-help course. And I'm sick of those. I think you're sick of those too, right? Try harder, do better, make yourself better in 2017. That's not this. This is a relationship with Christ. Christ is living in us, and it's him being expressed through us that we can live in a godly way. If you've been following the flow in this book, the first chapter was the message for the church, doctrine. And then chapters 2 and 3 had to do with the conduct of the church or the structure of the church. And then in chapter 4, we see a focus on the servant or the pastor, on on Timothy. There's a lot of personal exhortation that goes to him that we can apply to our lives. So verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. It should get our attention any time that we see this. The Spirit is passionate. The Spirit is expressly saying, the Spirit wants us to stop and pay attention that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. There seems to be here in verse 1, this understanding that the closer that we get to Christ's return, where Christ rules and reigns, Satan is going to amp up his attack. Because look at the end of verse 1. How do they depart from the faith? They give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So the spiritual attack through deception and false doctrine amps up as we get closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I've heard it said this way, and it's always stuck with me. If it was a really warm summer day, which we don't get a lot of those in Colorado, but let's say it's just a piping hot summer day. Think of that in the beginning of January, all right? So just hot, and you're at the pool, and out of the corner of your eye, you see a group that is coming to push you into the pool. You realize that you cannot defeat them and you are going into the pool. What are you going to do? You're going to take as many with you as possible. It's exactly what you're going to do. It's exactly what I'm going to do. 
Satan is going to get to that point where he realizes he's done. Christ is coming. Christ is ruling and reigning. He's, he's defeated. And so he's going to try to deceive as many people as possible. So this then provokes a question in verse 1 is, what does it mean to depart from the faith? And so some go back and forth. Can you lose your salvation and those types of things? And provokes even a deeper question, were they saved to begin with? You know, did they truly give their heart and life to, to Jesus Christ? And I don't want to necessarily focus on that. I personally don't believe you can lose your salvation if you've been born again. How do you be un, unborn again? But there is a warning here about being deceived by evil spirits and being deceived by the doctrine of demons that God wants us to pay attention to. Satan has good teachers. Do you realize that? That's really what verse 1 is saying. Not good teachers from the perspective that they're teaching truth, but they're very creative. Satan is so good at crafting his message and getting people to listen and pay attention to these things. Where do you pick up Satan's message every time you turn on the TV? Every time you stream Netflix? Every time you flip on the radio? When you're going through social media? When you're reading news articles? The enemy is using all of those things. So I'm not saying don't listen to anything, don't watch anything, don't read anything. But I am saying read, watch, and listen with a filter. Saying, what's this song teaching me and my kids? All right, let's talk about it. Because there's a clear message that's coming across in this song. All right, we just watched a show. What's this show teaching us about God, about things of life? Okay, we went to this movie. What, what's this movie sharing and, and declaring? Because Satan wants to deceive people, these deceiving spirits. And then the doctrine of demons, what does doctrine mean? It's our view of God. So Satan's trying to give us the wrong view of God. Anytime that God is mentioned in movies and in TV shows and music, it's usually wrong. Not always, but most of the time it's wrong, isn't it? We're seeing more Christian films come out, and that's exciting. But if it doesn't come from a believer's perspective, they're using the name of God, but they're giving us the wrong understanding of, of who God is. Is there any bigger battle out there than your knowledge of God and who he is? Are we aware of the fact that Satan's attacking us right now with our view of who God is and the view of our lives? And so that's where the chapter begins. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So though Satan is behind it, people get involved. We call them false teachers. And they speak lies and heresies. And especially this particular false teaching, that you are more godly if you reject certain foods and you reject marriage. Those that were teaching were teaching lies and hypocrisy, meaning they didn't even believe what they were teaching and they didn't even practice what they were teaching. It might look something like this. If you're really serious about the Lord, then you need to make sure that you don't ever eat any ice cream. So I'm preaching that to you and that's my axe to grind in 2017. No doubt you would find me eating some ice cream. And I'd be speaking to you in hypocrisy and, and in lies. So the, these false teachers, they're laying on this heavy trip upon the church in Ephesus that Timothy's now pastoring. 
And they're not even holding to the burden that they're sharing. Their conscience has become seared with a hot iron. So, so there's an element with a false teacher where they started off and at some point their conscience was pricked. But I said, I can't teach this. This isn't biblical. These are lies. I'm leading people astray. But over time, they'd step over that line, step over that line, and pretty soon you find that then the conscience completely gets seared with a hot iron. Now this verse speaks volumes to us about making sure that we listen to and heed the voice of our conscience. Now the conscience is different than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will use our conscience, but God places a conscience inside of every person who is ever born. How come as a child you feel bad about lying? That's your conscience. Why do you feel bad about stealing? It's your conscience. How come all cultures from all times throughout the world have a moral compass? Because God has placed a conscience inside of them. The conscience is one of the greatest proofs of the existence of God. So you have a conscience, and I've got a conscience. And if we're not careful, we can sear that conscience. We've all done it at different points in our lives. First time, we feel very convicted before the Lord. Second time, somewhat. Third time, conviction starts to go away. By at some point in the road, the conviction goes away, doesn't it? The conscience goes away. It's been been cut off. A good prayer for us this evening would, God, would you wake me up to my conscience again? And when the Holy Spirit pricks my conscience to respond in repentance, to go, Lord, Lord, this isn't right. We want to keep short accounts with God. We want to be on a short leash so we can be close to the Lord and for, for our own benefit. I want the Lord to just be able to tap my heart and say, hey, Eric, your heart's in the wrong place. Hey, hey don't go there. Don't do that. And the, these false teachers had completely cut off their, their conscience. It's never too late. God can revive and awaken our conscience. Here's what these guys taught. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Some have called this asceticism, this, this idea that you're abstaining from things that God has clearly given his blessing to. There's things in the word that we are to abstain from. It's called sin. But outside of that, God says, enjoy it. So we get to our first point tonight. And part of godliness is enjoyment. Enjoy what God has provided with thanksgiving. The Christian life is not just lived in the negative, it's primarily lived in the positive. What do I mean? So it's not just stay away from all these bad things called sin, that's part of it, but the more important part is enjoying our Father, enjoying Him, and being in relationship with Him, and being thankful for what He's provided for us. I was really surprised today when I did some research on this that the early church taught against intimacy inside of marriage. So this was happening in Paul's day and it continued for a long time throughout church. Could you imagine going to church and hearing a message about how you're not supposed to be intimate with your wife or your husband as a married couple? It seems strange to us. But Tertullian and Ambrush were Early church leaders, they believed, in the, they believed that the extinction of the human race was to be preferred to the sexual relationship within marriage. 
That is crazy talk right there, right? They're saying it'd be better for us to be extinct as a human race than for married couples to have sex together. And so this teaching was alive and well for Timothy and continued. The Roman church kept adding days in which marital intimacy was prohibited until more than half the days in the year were excluded. No wonder there was a reformation. (laughs) This is true stuff. You can look it up in church history. The Roman Catholic Church is like, no, you know, you, you, you can't do this. This, this, is, this is wrong today. And so what's your view of sex inside of marriage? Outside of marriage, it's destructive. But inside of marriage, it's to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. It's to be expressed inside of what the Lord has given and allowed. Also with food, to be able to be enjoyed. In the New Covenant, there's not a taboo list of foods. You may choose to not eat certain things for health reasons, but it's not an issue of godliness. That's what we need to understand. So you can enjoy a kale salad unto the Lord with thanksgiving, and you can enjoy a bratwurst unto the Lord with, with thanksgiving. Jesus told us it's not what goes into the man that defiles the man, but what comes out of the man from within. We're defiled from our hearts, not from the food that we eat. But these, these false teachers were going around and saying, don't enjoy your marriage. Don't enjoy these foods. If you really love the Lord, then you're going to abstain from these things. In verse 4, for every creature of God is good. God's created everything, every plant, all of the animals. And when they're used in their appropriate context, it's good. And nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. G.K. Chesterton has this saying. He says, you say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, playing, dancing, football. I added that one. (laughs) And grace before I dip the pen in ink. That's a beautiful theology. That's godly enjoyment. When we realize God has created all of these things so I can thank him for it. And that what a great place to be in our relationship with the Lord. Verse 5 says, For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So, so the food in and of itself is not amoral or moral It's our attitude towards it. So it's going, okay, Lord, you have provided this, and so now I'm giving thanks for the food that you have provided. And through the word of God and prayer, then that meal becomes sacred. It becomes special. It becomes something that we're offering to the Lord in thanksgiving. But the meal in and of itself is not righteous or unrighteous. So godly enjoyment. The book of Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about godly enjoyment. Enjoying what the Lord has provided and the Lord has given. How are you doing in that? Are you in that place of enjoying who the Lord is and what he's provided for you? Sometimes when we go through seasons where we don't have a lot or we go without, it really causes us to be thankful, doesn't it? You know, 
It's times when finances are difficult and you're making groceries stretch or you don't have the money to get to the grocery store. God provides. Go without a job. You're unemployed and then you get a job and you go to be able to get some groceries and you sit down and you go, this peanut butter and jelly has never tasted so good. God, thank you. Thank you for providing this. Sometimes we can get grumpy when we pay our rent or pay, pay the utilities, pay the mortgage, wish that there was more money in the bank. When was the last time you paid the mortgage? You said, God, thank you so much that I was able to pay rent, that I was able to pay, pay the mortgage. Because I bet there was a moment like that in your life. And if we could live in that kind of thanksgiving, saying, God, I'm just so thankful. I'm so thankful for who you are and what you've provided. Verses 6 through 11 bring us to godly exercise, training ourselves in godliness. Verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister or a good servant of Jesus Christ. Speaking to Timothy, Timothy's being encouraged, taught, instructed in this letter. What's unique about this letter is it's written to an individual instead of to a church body. And he says, Timothy, I want you to instruct people in this godly enjoyment. And that they don't get the wrong understanding of godliness. That godliness isn't found in abstaining from these things that I've given my approval of. So instruct them in this. And then you'll be a a good servant of Jesus Christ. You know, as pastors, we shouldn't take it upon ourselves to think that we can come up with whatever we want to share with God's people. God's pretty clear. He wants his people to study his word. So as we instruct people in God's word, as we read God's word to God's people, then that makes a faithful minister. That makes a a good minister of of Jesus Christ. I like the end of verse 6. It's nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. So here Timothy is giving and he's sharing, but there's also this encouragement that he would be nourished in the words of faith, that he would be nourished in good doctrine, and that he's given intention in his own life to follow what he's teaching. As you give out and pour out and share with others, it's important that you continue to get filled up, that you have time in God's word, that you're listening to to teaching and, and studying and meditating upon the Lord because that's how you, you get nourished. So, so let's say, for instance, you lead women's ministry or, or men's ministry or you teach Sunday school or teach in the, in the youth ministry or sharing with, with your kids. Where is your tank getting filled up? Where's your spiritual nourishment uh, taking place? A little bit of how this looks in, in my life is I always try to have a time in God's word in a section of scripture that I'm not teaching. You know, because I want, I want to just get alone with the Lord and say, God, speak to me. He, he's speaking to me as I'm preparing a sermon. But I don't want to be the only time in God's word is when I'm doing sermon prep. I want to make sure that I'm getting built up and being nourished in, in the word of God. And that's the encouragement to Timothy. And here's a, in, I'm using encouragement a lot, but he's built up, given a compliment. That's what I'm trying to say by Paul, that he had carefully followed this prior in his life. So, verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' fables. These are stories that aren't in the Bible, but people share them as though they are. They're profane and old wives' fables, just these stories that people like to talk about, but they're not from God's word. 
What's maybe something that comes to mind in this regard? God helps those who help themselves. That's got to be in the Bible, right? No, that's purely American, but it's not necessarily biblical. Never says that in the Bible. But it's easy to think that that's got to be in the Bible. And so it seems to be the atmosphere of the church is one where there's a lot at stake. There's false teaching that's taking place. There's a lot of good stories, but there's not a lot of getting into God's word. And that's where Timothy's being encouraged to turn things around. This is the personal challenge to Timothy and exercise yourself towards godliness. They live in a culture of the Olympics. The Olympics are very popular at this time period. They would watch these Olympic athletes train so hard to exercise. It's one of Paul's favorite analogies. He loved using the analogy of the athlete and the way the athlete would work and then applying that towards spiritual life. Saying, they're doing this in the physical world. Will you do this in the spiritual world? Exercise yourself towards godliness. The word godliness is used 15 times in the New Testament. Of those 15 times, nine times is in 1 Timothy. So there's a real message to Timothy. God wants you to live in a godly way, in a godly fashion. Does godly character come into our lives without some work and effort on our behalf. We're not saved by works, and it's Christ in us. That's the gospel. It's Christ working through us, but God wants us to have some skin in the game. He wants us to put some work and effort into it. So this is how I believe it works, is we choose to apply ourselves We choose to say, okay, I want to exercise myself towards godliness. That's the step of faith. God then does a work that can only come through his Holy Spirit where he receives the glory. But he's waiting for us to take a step of faith. He's waiting for us to apply ourselves. We will not reach perfection this side of heaven. Amen? I think we know that and we understand that. But we can continue to to grow in godliness. We can exercise ourselves towards godliness. So let's follow this analogy of the athlete. The athlete goes to the gym, does all this rigorous training, and what happens? There's growth. Things begin to change. The hard work pays off. So there's maybe an area of our life that God's saying, okay, I want you to grow in this area. Seems absolutely overwhelming to us. We fail in it all the time, but we respond to the Lord in faith and say, okay, God, I'm going to apply myself in this area. I'm going to press into this area. I'm going to memorize some scripture in this area. I'm going to ask some brothers and sisters in Christ to be praying for me about this. I'm going to make it part of of my prayer life. When I fall short, I'm going to ask that you'd, you'd forgive me. And we begin to apply ourselves in that way. And then God works and he does a great breakthrough uh, in, in our lives goes on and says, for bodily exercise profits a little. So there is some profit to bodily exercise. It has a little bit of profit. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your, your body's been engineered by the Lord. From a physical realm, it's one of the greatest blessings that, that we have received. And so we know there's a lot of research out there of, of the benefit of some, some exercise. God has given your body as an instrument. We don't exercise to be an ornament, you know, to just, okay, I want to look good, so I'm going to exercise. 
but it's an instrument that can be used for God's glory. Say, okay, I'm going to try to exercise. Maybe I'm going to try to eat healthy because I want to have good health to be able to to serve the Lord. But it's got a little bit of profit. They say for every hour that you spend in the gym, you'll add one hour to your life. It seems like a terrible trade because for that hour, you're in a sweaty, stinky, hot gym, not feeling very good, and then you get one hour at the end of your life. But you know, the older I get, the more I'm, I'm realizing, I used to not realize it, but I think there is some value in that. But it's, it's very minor, it profits a little compared to, but godliness is profitable for all things. What if I told you tonight that there's something that would add tremendous value to every area of your life? So exercise adds a little bit. But what if there was one thing that added profit to every area of your life? Oh man, that's great, that's good. It's godliness. Godliness is profitable in all things. Now profitable from God's perspective. Because how we define profit and how he defines profit is two different things, but God's promise here is godliness will benefit you and be valuable to you in every area of your life. Having a promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So godliness has a promise for this life. Remember Jesus? He hated wickedness. He loved righteousness. He was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows. Godliness pays off in this life. Have you ever regretted it? Is it easy? No but it's always worthwhile. But then also promise for the life to come in eternity. What you do now echoes for all of eternity. So it's worthwhile, the training. Say, okay, this is an area that God is challenging me in. This is an area that I want to grow in. So I'm going to train myself. I'm going to press in to this area of my life. I have a good friend who he loves to work out. He's in great shape. He's a, he's a big old guy. And He's always been convicted ever since I've known him, and I've known him for a long time. He says, I want to make sure I'm spending more time in God's Word than I am in the gym. And for him, he spends a ton of time in the gym. So he keeps track. Okay, I, I spent an hour at the gym, so I want to make sure I'm spending at least one hour reading God's Word. And most years, every year that I've known him, he reads through his Bible at least five times a year. Because he simply decided, I'm not going to spend more time in the gym than I do reading God's word. So he must be a gym rat, right? So, but that's just his personal conviction. He doesn't go around sharing it with everybody. But he took this section of scripture and he said, okay, there's a little bit of profit in exercise, but there's a lot more profit in godliness. So I want to make sure that my effort in my relationship with the Lord is more effort than I'm putting in to to the physical. In verse 9, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Don't wrestle with this. This is good stuff. Godly exercise. There's part of us that says, I I, want to reject this. I want to reject what God's saying here of the importance of godliness and that he wants us to put some effort into it. And Paul knows and the Holy Spirit knows that we'd wrestle. So this is a faithful saying and it's worthy of all acceptance. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, 
To what end? The end of being godly. That, that's the goal. That's what we're laboring towards. With that comes reproach. So don't get the wrong expectation of godliness. Okay, I'm pressing into Christ. I'm desiring to grow. So now everything's going to work out in my life. Paul will write to Timothy, he says, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So with the godliness does come reproach. Because we trust in the living God. Do I trust in the living God? Do we trust in the living God? Today, with whatever we're going through, can we say, I trust the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. This means that Jesus died for all. He's the Savior of all men. But those who experience that salvation are those who believe. The Bible is very clear. You have to believe in order to, to be saved. This isn't teaching a universalism that everybody's saved whether they believe or not. These things command and teach. I think Timothy's really struggling with boldness. He's being timid. He's being fearful. And so Paul is challenging him, saying, I want you to command these things, and I want you to teach them. The last thing that we'll look at tonight is godly example. Godly example. Can you think of someone in your life that's been a good example? Not a perfect example, but a good example. I think that it's one of the most powerful ways of learning, isn't it? You've maybe heard the expression that more things are caught than taught. That the best way of teaching is through example. Someone could tell me how to do something simple on a car. I'm not mechanically inclined. I know that's surprising to you. You're really shocked, right? They could say, Eric, this is how you need to change the battery. You know, changing the battery on a car seems extremely simple until you do it wrong and you give yourself a little woo, you know, a little shock there. But if I watch somebody change the battery on the car, it's incredibly easier. My life has been changed by YouTube videos with home projects. Yes. As simple as changing the filter in the water filter underneath the kitchen sink, I YouTube video it, watch it, and go, okay, that, that, that just saved me a lot of pain and agony. It's the power of example, isn't it? I mean, what did people do before the internet? I mean, crazy. So here's the challenge to Timothy. Let no one despise your youth. Timothy's young. We don't know exactly how young he is, but he's young enough where people looked at him and said, really? You're the pastor here? And that culturally, it wasn't until someone was about 40 years of age, a man was 40 years old, that he was respected in society. So anything younger than that, they're like, you're a young whippersnapper. You know, who, who are you to, to be able to teach me anything? I started doing youth ministry here at RMC when I was 21 years old. And a lot of times parents would come in and they'd walk up to me and they'd say, hey, do you know where the youth pastor is? Do you know who's, who's in charge around here? And i go, Nope, I haven't seen him. <laughs> you know? It, and so but Timothy finds himself in that place where, where he, people are looking down at him because of his youth. Here's what he's challenged to do. But be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love and spirit and faith and purity. Young people, if you feel like, oh man, I'm just too young to serve the Lord. 
I need more life experience before God can use me. No, you follow God's call now. Don't listen to the naysayers that say, oh, you're too young to be used by God. You're too young to take steps of faith. We see throughout scripture, the Bible is filled with God using young people. There's something about our youth where we're willing to take risk. We're willing to take steps of faith. The older that we get, the harder it is to take steps of faith. Daniel was a young man. God used him powerfully. Joseph was a young man. Jesus, in his earthly life, is 12 years old, walking with the Father, being, being used by the Father. It's never too young to be used by the Lord. But don't get defensive or get an entitlement mentality. That's not what God's saying to Timothy. He's saying, instead of getting defensive or angry, he's saying, be an example. And then through being an example, you earn credibility with God's people. And so the areas that he's calling Timothy to be example in is the way that he speaks. And this goes to us no matter what our age is. God's calling us to live as a godly example in the words that we say, in our conduct, in our lifestyle. You know, high school students, college students, if your parents were wondering where you're at, where would they find you? Hopefully they'd find you with the people of God, just like Jesus. They're wondering where Jesus was as a young man. Where was he? He, w- he was at the temple. So what's our lifestyle? What's our conduct? And then in love. Love like nobody's business. Love like there's no tomorrow. Love the way that Jesus loved. In spirit. I like this. And young people, be, be full of spirit. Be full of zeal that's contagious for the Lord. In faith. In trusting God. And then in purity. So this is what God's calling us to, to be in a godly example. And then till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and doctrine. What does Paul mean by give attention to reading? He's talking about the scriptures. He's saying, Timothy, you personally, make sure that you read the word. And then to be a good pastor, make sure that you read God's word to God's people. I think it's something that we've really neglected in church today is to simply read God's word out loud together. There's something really powerful about reading God's word together. Wasn't it fun to just read the chapter, to read those 16 verses without any commentary? Just let God's word begin begin to speak. We've neglected it personally. We've neglected it largely as congregations. And I want to encourage you in this area of godliness is fall in love with the Word of God again. Ask that God would give us a fresh desire for the Word of God and give attention to reading God's Word. It's not always romantic. Sometimes you read God's Word and God just knocks your lights out. Like, well, it's so good. And there are other times you read God's Word and you're like, now I'm really ready for bed, you know? What did I just read? I'm not sure what I just read. And that's part of the discipline. That's part of exercising yourself towards godliness. Ask that the Holy Spirit would speak to you. And he will. He'll be faithful. God's word will not return void. I've got to speak very bluntly to you. And hopefully that you receive this in love. And I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are the Wednesday night group. Is Wednesday night and Sunday morning or Saturday night is not going to be enough for your spiritual life you got to have time alone with God's word. 
This can enrich and it can supplement, but there's nothing like taking time to, to be in, in God's word. You say, well, I don't know where to start. Start with a book of the Bible. Start with Proverbs. Start with the Gospel of Mark. Start with the book of Romans. Maybe as you go into the new year, say, I'd like to read through the New Testament. I'm going to start, start with Matthew. Read a chapter or two a day. Approach the word of God with a, a pencil or a highlighter, ready to take down a few notes or write down a verse, and God will, will, will bless you. Break it down and maybe make it simple and say, maybe this year I'm not going to underline, I'm not going to journal, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to sit down and I'm, and I'm going to read it. I'm going to listen to God's word. Give attention to reading and then exhortation. Timothy challenged God's people to live the word. Give attention to doctrine, who God is and how God wants us to live our lives. Isn't it amazing how time doesn't change? I mean, this is perfect for pastors today. What do pastors need to hear? Read the word. Encourage people to live the word. Focus on good, sound doctrine. In verse 14, do not neglect the gift that's in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. One of the things that's so amazing to me about God and his grace is he saved us and he gave us gifts to be used in his kingdom. You've been given a gift by the Lord a spiritual gift. So use that gift. Timothy is so discouraged, so timid, so worried about his age and his lack of experience, he's wanting to take the gift that God gave to him and say, I'm not going to use it. I'm going to neglect this gift. My life would be easier if I didn't fulfill the call that God had placed in my life. And maybe that's where you're at tonight. You know that God has gifted you maybe with mercy to encourage believers, or teaching, or exhortation, or helps. You, you love to help people, or the gift of giving. And you, you know your spiritual gift, but maybe you've been hurt, maybe you're afraid, maybe you feel like, I'm too young, or I'm too old, and so you've neglected the gift that God has, has given to you. Later in Second Timothy, Paul will write and say, fan the flame of the gift of God. So God's given you this gift. Now fan that flame and use it for God's glory. Some of you are saying, I don't know that God's given me a gift. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I'd like to be used to encourage believers and reach out to unbelievers, but I have no idea. Start serving. Start reaching out to other believers. And you'll start to discover what your spiritual gift is. If there was a six-year-old that came down here in the middle of the sanctuary and was carrying a cup of water, and they fell, and they, all of this water is now in the sanctuary, how, how would you respond? If you have the gift of mercy, you're going to go to that child, and you're going to say, oh, I just feel for you. That's got to be so embarrassing. Here, here all these adults were, and you're, you feel mercy towards them. But if you've got the ex, ex, gift of exhortation, you're going to go to that child in a completely different way. You're going to say, you know, this really wasn't the best time to come into the sanctuary and come down the, the center aisle, and you really needed to, to, to be more careful. And in fact, you know better. I heard your mom tell you right before that this wasn't the time to come. Well, then you've got the gift of exhortation. 
And a lot of times people with the gift of mercy and the gift of exhortation tend to rub each other a little bit, you know. Got to see the value of, of both of those gifts. But if you have the gift of teaching, you're probably going to kneel down with that child and go, you know what? I noticed that your shoe was untied and that's why you tripped. So let me teach you how to tie your shoe and then next time you won't fall in the middle of the sanctuary. Now, could the child benefit from all of those interactions if they were done in love? Because all the gifts are to be used in love. Absolutely, right? And that's the beauty of the body of Christ. It's not a one-person ministry. It's an every-member ministry. It's us gathering together saying, Lord, how can I be used to, to benefit other, other believers? There's a lot of needs here at RMC as you pray through and you can fill out a volunteer application on, on the website if God is leading you to, to serve in that way. But you don't have to fill out a volunteer application to serve. We can serve one another every time we get together with believers. Next time you're getting together with believers to watch a football game, approach it saying, how can I serve them? You know, you're getting together with believers at a coffee shop. How can I serve them? I'm, I'm coming to church. How can I, I serve them? I don't want to neglect the gift that God has given Timothy's encouraged to remember God's call. Remember how you received this gift. Remember the laying on of hands and the word of prophecy. Remember what the Lord has done in your life. Meditate on these things. Don't allow it to go in one ear and out another. Think about it. Pray about it. Give yourself entirely to them. Timothy, give yourself entirely to enjoying what God has provided. Give yourself entirely to godly exercise, exercising yourself towards godliness. Give yourself fully to the reading of God's word and to sound teaching, that your progress may be evident to all. Timothy, you're young, but if you press into the Lord, people are going to see your growth in the Lord, your progress. It ends with this, take heed to yourself and to, and to doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who, who hear you. Our tendency, if we're not careful, is to watch over everyone else, but to neglect sin struggles in our own lives. So Timothy is being challenged. Take heed to yourself. Make sure that you're pressing into the Lord. Make sure that you're following God's word. And if you do that, you're going to save yourself and both those who hear you. You know, that's a real good word for pastors. Because as pastors, we're caring for God's people. And if we're not careful, we can be in a place where our blinders are on to our, our own sin. And we're not seeing the Lord. We're not seeing our own sin. And we at first have to get to that place where we're taking heed to ourselves. But I think we're wired like this, whether we're pastors or not. It's a lot easier to see everybody else's sin, isn't it? And to worry about everybody else's sin. You know, my sin is so annoying on somebody else, <laughs> right? And so here we are getting all upset about somebody else's sin and we're failing to see it in our own lives. And it's a fresh perspective to get into God's word and say, first and foremost, God, you're speaking to me and I need to apply this to my heart and to my life. So a lesson in godliness. Three questions and we're done. Just consider this with me. Am I rejecting something that I should be enjoying? When was the last time you heard that question in church, right? Am I rejecting something that I'm supposed to be enjoying and you've put a little godly sticker on it? You know, 
I'm more godly because I reject this. And God in his word has said, you should be enjoying this with thanksgiving. Am I training myself in godliness? Am I pressing in and pressing on? Is there an area of my life where, where God would want me to exercise myself in godliness? Am I training myself in godliness? And then, am I taking heed to myself, to the gifts that God has given and the way that I'm living my life? Would you stand with me and let's, let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you love us. And as we read your word tonight, it's challenging and it's convicting. And we see so many areas in our lives that need growth. And it's overwhelming. But yet we know that you died for our sin and you rose again. We want to enjoy all that you have provided. From food to, to marriage to every good and perfect gift that comes from you. Would you move us into a deeper place of of thanksgiving? And God, would you give us the courage to take that step of faith to to get in your gym, to develop godly character? And as we take that step of faith, would you do a work that we could never do in ourselves? Would you help us to be examples? Lord, for those that maybe feel that they've neglected their gift or being tempted to put their gift aside, would you encourage them? Would you bless this time of communion? In Jesus' name, amen.